0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And sometimes the stories are fun, as you know, and sometimes they're, well, they're educational, and other times, well, we're just going to tell you the hard ones. And this is a hard one, but it's an important one. And this is the story of homelessness in the end, and we're telling a bunch of these stories. And it's a serious problem in our country that's mostly ignored, and the homeless, well, they don't have a voice. Well, Mark Horovath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted, on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing from Eric. Eric lives in a homeless shelter in Traverse City, Michigan. He also works full-time as a cook in a local restaurant. Here's Mark.
1: Eric, yes, we're, sir. Here, we're here in Traverse City. You're homeless. Yes, sir. Tell me about it.
2: Don't recommend it to anybody. It is a very hard life to live, even when you're working. Uh, it's hard to get to and from. I stayed at Safe Harbor for a few months, uh, trying to get on my feet, trying to get caught up with like child support and past due fines and stuff, and I work in kitchens, so it was hard. I'd get home at like midnight after everybody was already in bed. And uh, wasn't allowed to take a shower a lot of the times, so only allowed one blanket, no pillow. Um, still got fed, but I ate at work. But for the most part, it's it's not a fun life to live.
1: So Safe Harbor is a winter shelter. Yes. Um, but Just, because you work nights or late, it was cha- even more challenging
2: than. Yep, and we had to be out no matter what, at uh, eight o'clock in the morning every morning. So I always had to be up early, even if I got home at twelve thirty, one o'clock. Didn't fall asleep till two. I was waking up at seven, to
1: go walk around all day to walk to work. Yeah, winter shelters do the best they can, but they really are not set up for people that work second or third shift.
2: No. Not at all.
1: Uh, that's for sure. Not at all. They're mostly set up for chronic homeless people. Get them inside so they don't freeze. To death. Mm-hmm.
2: It was close to work, so <laughs> yeah. I took advantage of it. But now I'm at the Goodwill. Today will be the first night here, and uh, we'll see how this goes.
1: Now, you've been working. You've been homeless for some time, and you maintain a job.
2: Yes. And You yep. said
1: you like to work.
2: I love to work. I can't, I can't not work.
1: So most people, when they see a homeless person, the first thing they say is, get a job. Right. Well, you got a job, mm-hmm. and you're homeless. So the job's not helping you get out of homelessness.
2: Nope, With between child supports and fines and the way the cost of living is up here, it's,
1: it's tough. We, we saw a, a, a tent earlier across the river here, or the lake, or whatever it is, and uh, I mean, basically, uh, the people in the tent, they're working. And that's affordable housing. Yep. It's crazy. So, I just met you in the hospital. We picked you up from the hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. And you were in the hospital because? Uh, I was uh, attacked. And?
2: And stayed for five days, had to undergo surgery uh, on the way back to Safe Harbor on my day off.
1: And you were attacked by a combat veteran going through PTSD.
2: True. And a very close friend.
1: Wow. Can you tell me about it?
2: I'd rather not on here.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's fine. If... Yeah, no, that's totally fine. Um, but being out on the streets is not safe. People don't realize there's so much violence from other homeless people, mm-hmm. and this was a friend, to also uh, kids come around and... Uh, you know, there's violence is increasing. It's not safe outside.
2: And it's very hard. It's hard to get a job when you got to put your address down on an application too. They see that, and then they want to know why and how and why you're looking for work and why you haven't had work, and it's tough.
1: How do you get around that?
2: Experience. I've been doing what I do for 18 years now, and have a pretty well-established resume and have the work ethic to back it up.
1: What would you want people to know about homelessness that they wouldn't normally know?
2: It can happen to anybody. One day you're on top, next day you're down. It can happen to anybody. Within an hour. You so can you lose have- your house, your cars, your kids.
1: So your homelessness happened pretty fast? Pretty quick. Wow.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. I come from Midland, Michigan, a wealthy town where Dow Chemical is and lost my house, my kids, my car to a violent relationship and decided to start over and still working on that.
1: (laughs) Um, What's your future like?
2: My future is optimistic. The company I'm with is growing, I'm looking forward to hopefully running a restaurant of theirs one day soon. Uh, we're moving to a restaurant downtown here in the next few weeks and they're going to turn the old one into a banquet hall. So they're going to be looking for more employees. I've gotten people jobs before and we're still hiring if people are looking for jobs. Um, there's jobs out there if you get out and look. Yeah. Especially in restaurants, especially in this town. That's why I came up here because it's, it's fairly easy to get a job up here in the restaurant industry.
1: Yeah. Now you're, you said... Uh, 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 every time you're in the winter shelter, you lost stuff.
2: Oh yeah. I've lost chef knives, I've lost a bag, tablet, um, knick-knacks here and there. They just come up missing.
1: It's no way to live.
2: No. Nope. No, it's not.
1: If you had three wishes, what would they be?
2: A wife, a home, and a family.
1: Great wishes.
2: Uh. Huh? Ten years ago.
1: <laughs> yeah, you'll get him again. I hope so. Well, thank you very much for talking to me.
2: You're welcome.
0: And you were listening to Mark Horovath and Eric and a wife, a home, and a family. Those were his three wishes. He'd had him once. He's hoping to have him again. Invisible People, by the way, is Mark's 501c3 dedicated to educating the people about homelessness through storytelling news and advocacy and there's no better way to advocate than to just give the microphone to the people we're trying to help for more search invisible people on youtube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv eric's story mark Horovath's story so many homeless people across this country's story here on our american story
4: There's a killer on the road
1: His brain is squirming like a toad
4: Take a long holiday Let your children play
1: If you give this man a ride Sweet mammal he will
4: die Killer on the
0: road This is Our American Stories And back in the day, Opportunity called people of courage to chase the sun into the plains of the new American frontier. These men and women shaped a nation and birthed a new American mythology. Today, with the passing of time, the myth of the notorious highway robber Black Bart is coming face to face with reality. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of Black Bart.
5: as got
3: old blue. Ralphie's fantasy encounter with Black Bart in the 1983 film A Christmas Story leads one to believe that Black Bart was some desperado.
4: Well, what have we got here, folks? Well, we figure he's Black Bart, uh, Ralph.
5: Well, it's just me and my trusty old red rider carbine accent on the shot range model air rifle. Lucky I got a
6: compass in the stock. Well, I think I better have a look here. No worries honey.
3: In the 1870s, there was a dime novel that was loosely based on Black Bart's true story. A Christmas story author, Gene Shepard, read this novel as a kid and included Ralphie's reincarnation of Black Bart as a desperado. Okay, Ralphie, you win this time, but we'll be
4: back! Adios, Bart! But if you do come back, you'll be pushing up daisies!
3: But Black Bart's real story... Is far more fantastical than Ralphie's imagination. To tell the story of America's most successful and eccentric stagecoach robber is one of America's greatest storytellers, an author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Roger McGrath is also a regular on the History Channel. Let's begin with Dr. Roger McGrath and the story of Highwayman Black Bart.
4: Black Bart was the most successful highwayman in American history. For more than eight years, this would be from 1875 to 1883, he preyed on stagecoaches, robbing 29 of them. Ah! No other road agent could match Black Bart's record. Moreover, Black Bart was a gentleman. He always treated everyone courteously and took only the express box. He left the passengers untouched. Black Bart probably got away with upwards of $30,000. That would be something like $2 million in today's money. Black Bart's real name was Charles Bowles. He was born on a farm in upstate New York in 1831. His parents were recent immigrants from England. Little is known about his early years, other than he grew up as a typical farm boy. At age 18, he and his older brother, David, left the farm to join the gold rush of 1849. They first prospected on the American River, and then throughout the Lode country. Life in the diggings was rugged, and many a prospector died from disease, accident, or gunplay. David Bowles was one of those who met an early end. He grew ill and died in July 1852. Here's Black Bart biographer Gayle Jenner.
6: Charles was devastated. He had been the one to truly want to come out to California. He felt guilty. He was a restless soul. That played very heavily into the choices he made later on.
4: Charles continued to prospect, in fact, for another two years. And then he drifted back to the Midwest. In Decatur, Illinois, he met and married a girl named Mary and settled down and began raising a family. When the Civil War erupted, Charles enlisted in the Union Army. For more than three years, he served with distinction. He fought in several major battles and was severely wounded in one of them but returned to fight again. He even served under General Sherman on his brutal march to the sea. Here's Civil War historian, Harry Jones. To march with Sherman's army,
1: you certainly are fit.
4: He was very demanding
7: of his soldiers. And being able to understand what trails will get you where, what trails could be easily ambushed and therefore you set up defenses for them at the proper places. That would be of value to someone who later becomes known as Black Bart.
4: Charles rose to the rank of first sergeant before this last battle and then just before the war ended was commissioned as second lieutenant. After the war, his gold fever returned. He left his wife Mary and his daughters in Illinois to go off to the mines of Montana and Idaho on foot. Every so often he sent Mary a letter, saying that he'd be on his way home soon. The last letter Mary received came from Silver Bow, Montana in August 1871. Why he stopped writing after that, we don't know. As the months went by with no further word, Mary grew frantic, ...and finally sold the family home to raise money for her search for her husband. Meanwhile, the missing husband continued prospecting. But as word is Montana, as Montana's riches spread, the competition for claims increased. Well, you can thank
1: Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo. They just bought me out. Seems
7: like they <laughs> aim to buy up the whole territory.
4: Large companies rushed to capitalize on local strikes and eliminate the competition. They buy up businesses and all land surrounding successful claims. Here again is Gail Jenner.
6: There was mining going on in various sections of Montana. He did have a claim where he was in competition with other people also setting up claims, and there was a lot of violence that was occurring around him.
1: Mr. Bow.
3: Welcome, John. What can I do for you?
4: We want to buy your claim. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Good day.
1: It doesn't look like much is
8: coming.
4: There'll be plenty just as soon as the water comes up. Good day.
8: It'd be a shame if it did not
4: Wells Fargo began consolidating its stage lines for new mining towns in Idaho, Utah, and Montana. Rumors of the company going into the mining business make Bowles suspicious. Just days after receiving offers for his claim, the water supply suddenly dried up. His claim was now worthless. Bowles is convinced it's no coincidence. Here's author of The American West, W.C. Jameson. What Wells Fargo did is divert the stream from which Bowles was panning the gold to where he was forced to abandon his gold mine. Many historians believe that this was the moment he set his sight on one of the most powerful companies in the West, Wells Fargo, making the company out to be responsible for his misfortune. A hard-working miner and former Union soldier with dreams of striking it rich, made a bold decision, to extract revenge. In 1874, Bowles left his claim and moved to the cosmopolitan hub of Northern California. Consumed by revenge, Bowles completely broke ties with his family, cut himself off from the past, and reinvented himself. He moved to San Francisco, all the while nursing this anger, this hatred, toward wells fargo in preparation for his revenge bulls did his homework i watched the stages from a second camp far from my home camp to ascertain the exact time they passed i found them to be at the same spot every morning at 7 a.m
6: all over northern california They were shipping lots of gold from one place to another. They had over 3,000 miles of stagecoach roads. It was a big target for thieves.
0: And when we come back, we're going to continue with this riveting story, the real story, the story behind the story of Black Bart. And by the way, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories... Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. is our American stories and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles aka Black Bart and we had learned that lots of gold was shipping all around this country from place to place and my goodness that made those gold carriers ripe targets for highwaymen that is bandits let's continue with the story of Black Bart.
4: In July, 1875, a stagecoach with a Wells Fargo express box was working its way up a steep grade on the way from Sonora to Copperopolis in the mother lode country. Just a few miles short of Copperopolis, a hooded figure suddenly jumped from behind a boulder.
9: Throw down that box,
4: please. Well, the demand from this hooded figure was reinforced by a double-barreled shotgun aimed at the stagecoach driver. The robber's head was covered by a flour sack with two holes cut for the eyes. And even his boots couldn't be seen. They were covered by thick socks to avoid leaving tracks. As the driver grabbed the express box, Iowa men yelled an order over his shoulder. If he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys driver glanced up at the hillside behind the highwaymen and thought he saw at least a half dozen rifle barrels aimed his way. It's called a Quaker gun trick. Used in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, it's named for the Quakers, who, like bulls, oppose violence. The trick uses sticks to look like guns and logs to look like cannons to fool the enemy into believing they're facing a force much larger than they actually are with a real sense of urgency the driver threw the express box onto the road the highwayman quickly removed several bags of gold coins a frightened woman passenger tossed her purse out of the stagecoach and into the road the highwayman picked it up, bowed and returned it to her saying in a deep and resonant voice Ah. madam I have no desire of your money In
7: that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo.
3: I don't
6: know what are reaching for, friend? Charles has poked sticks through the bushes so that it appears that there could be other guns around. Just give him what he wants. He's got his mask on, He's he's got a duster on, he's got his gun pointed. He was an enigma. He was a very hard man to figure out
4: good
9: day to you, sir. Thank you, kind.
4: He disappeared into the brush and escaped on foot over 120 miles through rugged terrain, through the mountains, and back to San Francisco. He returned to high society in plain sight, where he developed an alter ego. He called himself Charles Bolton. Bolton's reputation grew as he became known as a successful gold prospector and socialite. Here's Old West historian, Chris Ince.
5: Charles Bowles went by Charles Bolden because it sounds very sophisticated. It has a certain dignity associated with it. He is as comfortable living in the wilderness as he is in the city.
4: Yes, sir. Circumstances compelled me. I yielded to the temptation of crime only after enduring severe struggles from which I had no control. Following his first robbery, Bowles took odd jobs that pulled him away from the city and gave him access to new targets.
6: He was trying just a little bit of everything. He tried school teaching for a while, which would have been unnatural for him because he was intelligent, he was sharp.
7: <laughs> now let us turn to the case of Summerfield
9: and that notorious bandit, Black Bard.
5: He's incredibly well-read. In addition to Shakespeare, that kind of thing, he also reads the Sacramento Union. And in the Union paper is a story written by an attorney who does make up this character named Bartholomew Graham, or Black Bart.
4: Charles Bowles adopted the name and transformed into highwayman Black Bart. Following Black Bart's first robbery, Wells Fargo detective James Hume was put on the case. Here again is Gail Jenner and historian Marshall Trimble.
6: James Hume chose to become the kind of person who would never quit. He has an obsessive, compulsive kind of desire to make things right. Gentlemen. This is the beginning of this detective period. When there's a robbery, you don't just get out there and look for horse tracks. It gets much more sophisticated. Technology such as starting to change as to how to track these guys down. And this is what Hume is
4: uh, really adept at. Welcome to school, boy. Hume was one of the great Welcome detectives of the Old West. But this Black Bart character had him stumped. Gentlemen, our efforts up to this point have been unacceptable.
1: He's making a mockery of us, and I will not stand for that.
6: Hume begins to put together that this man is quite capable of covering long distances in between the robberies. He knows that it's not a multiple-person job, that this is a a lone man.
4: Beginning with a second stagecoach robbery, Black Bart would leave behind a verse or two of poetry. Hume, a man as cunning and restless as the bandit himself, read it.
1: I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of... Blacks. Black
9: butt. Oh,
1: He's mocking me.
6: He's mocking me!
4: Jung didn't know what to do with witness testimonies.
1: What was his behavior, his demeanor? Did he threaten you or take any of your personal belongings? No, sir. He was polite. Said please and thank you. And that's what's left of the cash box
4: over there. The public had doubts about Detective Hume and Wells Fargo. Hume took it personally.
6: Wells Fargo is putting more and more pressure on James Hume. The newspapers are having a field day. There were lots and lots of articles about who is this black Bart and people are ridiculing both James Hume and Wells Fargo. They're becoming a joke. And so they're determined now to try and figure this out and lots of pressure is coming from lots of different directions.
4: Here's a quote from Hume in the San Francisco Examiner in 1884. I refuse to buy a romanticized
1: image of Black Bart as fabricated by the press. He is a fraud who is Robin Hoodwinking a gullible public.
4: Jim Hume began to piece together a physical description of Black Bart.
1: Bart was
10: armed, but he didn't shoot back though. Nope.
4: Not his style. No horse track. he escapes on foot. As Black Bart's stage robberies continued, the price on his head increased. Wells Fargo offered a $300 reward. State of California chipped in another 300. And the US government Two hundred. The eight hundred dollar total was really quite a sum back in the 1870s, something like eighty thousand dollars today.
0: And when we come back, what happens next? And what a story, by the way, feels a little bit like the Great Gatsby, with a little bit of Jack London in it. It's a thriller. It's an American classic never knew the rest of this story and you're about to hear it. Charles Bowles becomes Charles Bolton. The world at the time and now knows him as Black Bart. This is Our American Stories. The story of Black Bart continues after these messages. And again, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. And by the way, we love telling stories about the American West. And not in this particular case, but in so many cases, we use Phil Anchorage's terrific two books, Out Where the West Begins, as a subject and source material for those stories. We've done Samuel Colt's story, Jedediah Smith's, Levi Strauss's, which is a stem winder, And the Coors family, you know, you take for granted Coors beer. Where did it come from, and who are the men and women who got it going? And why Denver? Why Colorado? These people came from Germany. Well, go to alamericanetwork.org for all that we do, and hundreds and hundreds of hours of American storytelling, classic American storytelling, are there. When we last left off, Black Bart, well, the price on his head kept going up. Wells Fargo had money on his head. The American government... Lots of other private businesses. Well, there's a reason for it. Black Bart, well, he just kept hitting those stagecoaches. And as he kept hitting them, the price on his head, it just kept going up. And now we return to the story of Charles Bowles, AKA Black Bart.
4: Black Bart's luck nearly ran out on his 23rd stagecoach robbery. The stage was on its way from Laporte to Oroville when Black Bart blocked its path. Easy, boys. Easy does it. Keep those hands where I can see them. Nice and easy. Would you be so kind as to throw down that box? I'll get it right now for you, sir. Instead, the Wells Fargo guard swung his rifle around and fired. Black Bart leaped into the brush and ran for it. They didn't know it, but the bullet fired at Black Bart creased the outlaw's head. A fraction of an inch change in trajectory would have spelled the end for Black Bart. On a Sunday in November 1883, Black Bart's luck finally did run out. Early that morning, a stagecoach pulled out of Sonora bound for Milton. The driver of the stage was a veteran of the run, Raisin McConnell. At Reynolds Ferry on the Stanislaus River, McConnell picked up a passenger, 19-year-old Jimmy Rolari. Rolari operated the ferry, but it was still early in the morning. And he thought he might go up the hill a and do a little hunting. When the stage began the long climb, Rolari jumped off with a Winchester rifle in hand. The stage had nearly reached the summit when a hooded highwayman leaped from the brush. He trained a shotgun on McConnell.
9: Throw down that box. I... I can't. Please. Bolt it to the floor.
4: Well, it's lucky for you I brought my tools. Easy does it. We wouldn't want to spook the horses. Now, come down off that stage, friend, and start walking and don't stop. McConnell tried to signal for Larry, who was casually walking up the road. Finally, McConnell got his attention. Just then, the highwayman straightened up with a sack full of gold. Larry fired. Highwayman stumbled, but managed to spring into the brush and disappear. McConnell reported the holdup. The local county sheriff, Ben Thorne, and his deputies were soon at the scene of the crime found a number of things the highwayman had left behind in his hasty departure. There was a black derby hat, two paper bags containing crackers and sugar, a pair of binoculars, and a handkerchief. Once back in his office, Sheriff Thorne inspected the items left behind at the scene of the robbery. He noticed some badly faded lettering on the handkerchief. He turned the handkerchief over to Wells Fargo Detective Jim Hume, who in turn gave the handkerchief to Harry Morris. Hume had hired Morris six months earlier to do nothing but work on the robberies of Black Bart. Morris had recently retired as sheriff of Alameda County, and now he had his own private detective agency. He was one of the great lawmen of the Old West. Fresh sign. When uh,
6: James discovers the handkerchief, He was delighted, and as he examines it, he sees the mark, FX-07, and he knows this was, in fact, a laundry mark.
1: This man must be found.
6: Hume decides we're going to
5: have to track this laundry mark.
1: Take your men and leave no stone unturned.
5: So they go to 93 different laundries in the San Francisco
3: area. Yes, sir, can I help you? Yes. that your mark? Uh, Yes, that's our mark. From one of our customers? C.E. Bolton. He's a local gold prospector.
4: Since you thought that Black Bart lived in San Francisco, Morris began his investigation there. Now, under the guise of a business proposition, Morris was introduced to Charles Bolton. Bolton looked every inch the mine owner he purported to be. He was dressed in an expensive tailored wool suit and a bowler hat. He carried a walking stick, a diamond ring was on one finger, and a heavy gold watch was suspended from a gold chain. He was handsome with deep-set blue eyes. He stood about five foot eight and was ramrod straight. He looked anything but a robber. Morris managed to get Bolton to an office where Jim Hume waited. So word on the street is you're quite the
5: successful gold prospector. Tell me, Mr. Bolton,
3: where are your mines located?
4: Well, if it's one thing I've learned, sir, it's not to disclose too much information to a perfect stranger.
3: (laughs) Mr. Bolton, I'd like you to
4: meet Detective James Hume. minutes later, a captain from the San Francisco Police Department arrived, took Bolton into custody. At the police station, Bolton was placed under arrest. He feigned astonishment and asked for what possible cause was he being arrested. Hume answered, because you are
1: Black Bart. The infamous highwayman
4: I had a premonition that this would happen today. Aren't you the lucky one?
5: Charles Bulls wanted them to know that it was him. And to be able to tease and to play with... The people that have been chasing him and trying to get at this, it gave him pleasure. You do want somebody to know.
4: Buck Bart pleaded guilty to the last of his robberies. Whereas the said C.E. Bolton is convicted of robbery by his own admission, he is therefore ordered, adjudged, and sentenced to San Quentin, the state prison for the period of seven years. He became a model prisoner. Take him away. And was released in January 1888 after serving a little more than four years. He was then 57 years old. Reporters waited outside for his release. Black Bart, are you going back to your life of robbing stagecoaches?
3: Oh, no, I've given up my life of crime. We're going
0: to go back to writing poetry. Did you hear me, son? I said I'm done
1: committing crimes.
4: (laughs) After being released from San Quentin, Black Bart returned to San Francisco, and there he was offered the opportunity of appearing on stage in a theatrical production. Somebody wanted to take advantage of his notoriety, But he refused. Jim Hume had his men shadow Black Bart, but suddenly one day, early in March 1888, Black Bart gave him the slip. Bowles was a pretty smart guy. It is likely that he knew that that Hume was following him. Hume perhaps had a hunch that maybe Bowles might return to his nefarious ways. Reports had Black Bart in several different western states, then in Mexico, Canada, Japan, China, and finally Australia. None of these reports, though, was ever confirmed. Black Bart, America's most successful highwayman, had simply disappeared.
0: And what a story. And if you want to hear it again or share it with friends, again, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Boy, this story has it all. Guy's comfortable in the wilderness, in the big city. His brother dies early. He blames himself, tries to make a living honestly, feels like a big, bad business had taken advantage of him. By the way, we love telling stories about good businesses, but sometimes there are some bad ones. And he felt like Wells Fargo had cheated him out of his stake. And so he was going to take it back. What a story and great work, as always, Greg Hengler. And by the way, Black Bart and James Hume reminds me of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Two people joined at the hip forever. And they are. Not sure why this isn't a movie or hasn't been, but it should be. This is Lee Habib. Charles Bolton's story. Charles Knowles' story. Black Bart's story. They're all the same guy. Here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now, Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone you likely don't know, but you'll be glad to have met.
8: Harris Rosen is the grandson of immigrants.
9: Harry Rozanovsky from Belarus, Russia, came here by himself in the early 1900s. Things were not going well in Russia at all for Jewish people. About the same time, the gentleman named Rosenhaus, he also came alone. There was a tremendous exodus. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people left for America. So, Rozanovsky and Rosenhaus went through the process. Rosanovsky's name was shortened to Rosen. Rosenhaus' name was shortened to Rosen. And so now you have two new Rosens in America. My mom was born here in America. Her dad was Rosenhaus. My dad was born here. His dad was Rosanovsky. They met in high school and fell in love and got married. Growing up on New York City's Lower East Side was really quite an experience. Italian families, Irish families, and mostly Jewish families, all living together in not very uh, nice accommodations. I don't think my brother and I perceived the neighborhood as anything significantly different than a, a normal neighborhood. So one day, we see a sightseeing bus. Why would anyone want to go to the 3rd Avenue L? And a couple of ladies stepped down and looked around and said, so this is how they live. So this is how they live. And my brother and I looked at each other. What's so different? Isn't this the way people live? And so we were a bit confused, and when we walked home, we explained to mom what had happened, and she said, not everyone lives, Over Over 100,000 homeless people, not everyone lives the way you guys live. Some people live in homes. Some people live where there are trees and grass. I think that was the first time Ron and I heard that where we were living was different. I mean, you you just live there and you're comfortable there and you're playing all kinds of games and, and having fun and don't think about
8: those things. And therefore, this thing called poverty didn't get in Harris's way. A decade later, he needed a job, so he knocked on the office door of the hotel where his dad worked, the Waldorf Astoria.
9: I had no idea if they had any, and the personnel director said to me, Harris, you've got four years at Cornell, you've got three years and three months as an officer overseas, we don't have anything for you. And I said, I don't care what job you have, I'll take it. She said, what do you mean? I said, anything. Whatever it is you'd like me to do, it's a start. She said, well, if that's the way you feel, I have a job opening right here. I said, what is it? She says, is a file clerk. Whenever there is a job opening, you have to prepare all of the paperwork and make sure that everyone is aware of that opening so that we can find someone who is qualified for it. I said, that sounds great. She said, are you sure? I said, I'm sure. I didn't stay there very long because, wow, that was the best thing you've ever done, Rosen. Every single job opening, you now have first dibs at. So within a very short period of time, maybe a month, there was a Job opening on the fourth floor where all of the small breakout rooms were as a setup guy. So we would work together to set rooms up. If they needed a conference table, we'd do that. Chairs around the conference table, so whatever they wanted. I said, I want to get near sales. She said, Okay, you got the job. 99.99% of the folks were. Hispanic, and it was good. I learned a little Spanish, not necessarily vocabulary that was appropriate. And one day I'm in one of the conference rooms and a short fellow, nicely dressed, says, are you one of the guys working? I said, yes sir. He said, really? I said, yes yes, sir, why? Well, I mean you just look a little bit different. I said, yeah, but I'm enjoying the work. He said, but well, tell me a little bit about yourself, and I did. And you just came from the military, you were an officer, and you went to Cornell University, and you're working with these guys? I said, that's perfectly fine. He said, do you have any interest in sales? And I said, that's my dream. He said, Harris, are you kidding? I said, no, that's my dream. I'm right next to you guys we're on the fourth floor he said I'll tell you what Harris my name is Xavier Livadini and I'm the director of sales the next opening we have you're in and that was the beginning that was the beginning
8: the beginning to owning 6% of all of Orlando's hotel rooms and giving tens of millions away
0: It's a start, and that's the kind of attitude that you can have and accomplish almost anything in this country. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, an American dreamer story, if ever there is one, and if ever we've done one. Harris Rosen's story continues here on Our American Story. we continue here with our American stories and with Harris Rosen's stories his Rosen Hotels and Resorts has eight properties in Orlando but he started out as a physical laborer and made his way to the Walt Disney Company
9: I hadn't received a pay increase since I was hired so probably in around five years and was waiting for my boss or someone else to have a conversation with me. And one day they called and said that not my boss but my boss's boss wanted to chat with me. I was so happy. I was so happy. I thought, wow, finally. I was probably making about $15,000 a year. And I was wondering, would I get up to 20? Bob Allen sat down he says, oh, you've really done a nice job. Oh, I was so happy. Wow. And then the word but. But we, we don't believe you will ever be a successful Disney executive. What a shock that was. I didn't know how to respond, but... I do, on occasion, slip back to my Lower East Side personality. And calling people by their first name was very common at Disney. I said, Bob, you said, I'll never become a Disney executive. Is it because my ears are too small? And he said, Harris, that's the kind of bull we're talking about. You don't respect the mouse so I was fired it was a terrible terrible time fired for not respecting a rodent and not even a real one a make-believe which is really embarrassing In the early 70s, there was an oil embargo. Imagine how disruptive that was here in Orlando. People couldn't buy gas. They couldn't come to Orlando. Buses, tour buses would come, but not cars. I don't think there was a hotel that was running at more than a 40% occupancy. Well, that was really the third job I'd been fired from. And I said, no more. You've got to do something yourself. So look for a little motel to buy. And one day I drove in here Now, The original motel was 256, or we're now 728. So on June 14, 1974, after meeting with the owner and having him share with me in a very emotional way, he needed to get out of this property because he hadn't seen his wife and three little girls in weeks. He couldn't afford a general manager, couldn't afford a salesperson, didn't know anything about the business. He was a real estate guy, and he bought the little motel as an investment. He was so happy to see me. He hugged me and took a couple of weeks, he invited me back to the hotel. And then he asked me how much money I had in the bank. And that was weird. I, I couldn't imagine why he would ask that question. And I said, do I tell him or I said, tell him. I said, I have $20,000 in the bank. And he extended his hand. I shook it. He said, you give us the $20,000, you assume the mortgage, which is about two and a half million dollars and it's your property, he shook his hand. I didn't even know what assuming a mortgage was. So on June 24, 1974, I walked into my office and I cried. I gave away everything I had. And I spoke to my attorney and he said, Harris, do you know what assuming a mortgage is? I said, not really. He said, that means you have to pay probably close to $250,000 every year, or you lose the hotel. I said, where am, where am I gonna get to 250,000? He said, you work your off and make a profit. I said, oh my God, no way that I was able to make 250, unless i made some really drastic changes. So I moved in here. I was the general manager I didn't have any assistant general managers. I did the breakfast cooking. I did all of the carving at night. I was the gardener. I was the head of security. I was the food and beverage manager. I was the director of sales. All of those jobs totaled over $200,000. All I had to do then was make another $50,000 to pay the mortgage. How was I going to get any occupancy? Motor coach. I hitchhiked to New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, spoke to the top motor coach guys who were so, so kind. They heard what I had done, they heard that I hitchhiked. They all found a place for me to sleep while I was there. They took me to my next motor coach company. It was from New York to New Jersey, New Jersey. What I did for them, I had some business cards made and I gave them my business card and I said, whatever room rate you think is fair, whatever you wanna do, whatever rate, write it down, I'll guarantee it for two years when I get back to Orlando, I'll send you a formal letter guaranteeing the raid. He said, are you serious? I said, I'm serious. So I booked a bunch of motor coach companies. I can remember some of them. I booked Liberty, GoGo in New York. I picked Domenico in New Jersey. Paragon and Crimson in Massachusetts. When I was in Massachusetts, the Pendler family, Paragon Tours, how are you getting home? I guess I'll picture, no, no, no. We'll find someone who's heading to Florida, and they'll, they'll drop you off at the hotel, and they did. And the buses started rolling in. We are one of the few hotel companies, I guess, that is completely debt-free. I'm around 10, 11 years old. My two Zadies, grandpas, came over, and sitting on either side, thick Eastern European accents. They said, boy, chick, you're going to be very successful. You have something very special in your genes. I did not know what they were talking about. But listen to you, Zadis, don't ever borrow money. They lost everything during the Depression, 1929. They were both very entrepreneurial. Samuel was making barrels at his own little barrel company. Harry had a beautiful little restaurant on Hester Street. But they started buying little apartment complexes. And after the Depression, many people were not able to pay their rent. They didn't want to have families leave. So they paid the rent until they ran out of money and they were foreclosed. So here's the funny part. I go to bed at night. My brother and I had a tiny little bedroom, and Mom always tucked us in. And she's tucking me in, and she says, Harris, why don't you have your PJs on? She said, why are you wearing your jeans? I said, because my two Zadies said I had something special in my jeans. She said, no, different different kinds of genes. She tried to explain to me what, what they meant. What would it not be absolutely incredible if my two Zadies would come down for a visit and see what their little grandson has done. They started it all
0: by leaving their
9: families
0: June 14, 1974, well that was his birthday, and he assumed a $2.5 million mortgage, forking over the only $20,000 he had. I didn't know what a mortgage was, let alone what assuming one was. By the way, we also learned the power of speaking words over children, and especially beautiful ones. When we continue, Harris Rosen's story here on our american stories and by the way go to rosenhotels.com to book your next stay when you're in orlando and share this story with your kids We continue with Our American Stories in the final portion of Harris Rosen's Remarkable Life Story. And one day, he's in his office dreaming of building his next resort, and he heard the voice of the Holy Spirit tell him, Harris, it's time to start giving. And so Harris got to work. Sitting in these two chairs
9: about 28 years ago, I had two individuals, Sarah Sprinkle and Bill Spoon. Bill was the principal of Dr. Phillips High School. Sarah was an early childhood expert. I said, I want to help youngsters, education, scholarships. But I want something different, something that might be more creative and productive sarah said i have an idea why don't you offer preschool education start the kids when they're two that's an advantage that they will retain forever and then what and then bill says let's mentor them through high school let's work with their parents let's have a guide that's working with them and if they want to go on to college you provide a scholarship They want to go to trade school you'll provide a scholarship or community college and what if we combine those two endeavors into one program sarah said it's a great idea bill said it's a great idea i said i love it i have to find a neighborhood
8: rather than do something bigger like focusing on a city state or country and have a smaller impact on each person Harris decided to do something smaller, just focusing on one single neighborhood of 3,000 people and have a bigger impact on each person. And the whole neighborhood that he adopted is called Tangelo Park.
9: This poor neighborhood is in complete disarray. Drugs, prostitution, alcohol. Kids aren't going to high school. High school graduation rates were horrible. It was probably in the low 40s. I think sometimes high schools were just really more anxious to say goodbye to the kids and they just gave them a diploma. Virtually none of the kids are going to college. It's a mess. And the neighborhood is so disgusted, they want to take the neighborhood back. So here we are, 28 years later. High school graduation rate's 100 percent. Crime in the neighborhood down 78 percent. I don't know how many kids we've sent to college, hundreds and hundreds of kids to college. College graduation rates in four years went to 78 percent. I think nationwide they're probably around 35 percent in six years. Of course, real estate values from 40,000 to hundred and fifty to 200,000. Didn't want any publicity, didn't want any data. I, I didn't want people to think that I was just pounding my chest. The sheriff came to me about four or five years ago and said, Harris, you've created an oasis in Tangela Park. There's less crime there than there is in some of this fancy schmancy gated communities. Wow keep it up. So UCF said, Harris, why are you keeping this a secret? You've got to let people know about it. So it must have been about 10, maybe 15 years ago that UCF started putting some data together. I I don't really get very involved in all of that stuff. But it's important because as someone in business, I understand when I'm approached by a business person, and the question is, Harris, if you've invested X in this new philanthropic program, what kind of return is there? And I, I, that's a very valid question. I said, I don't know. He said, be helpful if you found an answer. So I, I guess we've spent a little over $12 million so far, and Lance Lochner at University of Chicago. He said the return on investment is seven to one. So if you invested 12, society gets back 84. How? Well, these kids are going to college. They're working, they're paying taxes, crime is down. And so he said, I've added all of that together and this is the return on investment. Generally speaking, Lance said, if it's a government program or kind of a pseudo government program, there's not much return. If it's one for one, it's good. Often, it's you get a half buck back for every dollar you spend. Rarely is there a positive return. Seven to one is unheard of. I, 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 the government is really not capable of, of doing things very efficiently. So, mention the government. Duncan, Arnie Duncan, former commissioner of education. He's here in Orlando. Someone lets me know that he's here. Said Harris, "Why don't you go over and we'll give you five minutes with him?" So I spoke to Arnie about the program, and he said, "Look, I'm heading to the airport. Why don't you hop a ride with me?" and talk to me about the program. So I had about a half hour with him. He said, send me a note. And I said, look, I I don't want money. What my dream would be, would be for the president to invite me and some of my board members and to invite a group of private sector individuals, wealthy individuals, to hear our story and get them excited about the program. He said, gotcha. About a month later, we get a call. We're calling from the secretary's office. We'd like to come down and spend some time at Tangelo. Wow, a man of his word. Guy comes down, spends a whole day there. He says, it is the most amazing program I've ever seen. I'm gonna share this with Secretary Duncan. Thank you. We're so excited. We're going to go to the White House.
4: There
9: are going to be hundreds of wealthy guys and gals, and we're going to tell them the story. Oh, my God. So I get a call several months later. We got great news for you, Harris. I said, oh, my God. Secretary has agreed to give you a half million dollars a year for your program. What? a half million dollars a year for your program. But I, 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 I didn't ask for any money. Well, but he thinks you deserve it. I said, no, what do you mean no? No, I just wanted him to invite us to give a presentation to other wealthy individuals. We don't, we, listen, you guys are like back then, maybe 10 trillion in debt. You don't need to give me money. I'm fine. He said, so you don't want the money? I said, no. He said, I'll call you back. I'm still waiting. (laughs) But I I, I close my eyes sometimes and I wonder what would America be like if every underserved community had a Tangible Park program. Oh my God.
0: And what a story, my goodness, Harris Rosen putting his money where his mouth is and investing in a small part of a larger community and getting a 7-to-1 return. And this, of course, is what we all know. And this is on us as private citizens. We can complain about government all day, but this stuff is possible with our own dollars. And a 7-to-1 return, no, he's right, that's not your typical return. Harris Rosen's story And by the way, if you have any net worth or capacity or know anyone in your neighborhood, you should be giving Mr. Rosen a call or visiting his hotel or visiting his neighborhood. And you know where you can find him. I'm sure you just have to drop his name in that part of town and you'll find him. Harris Rosen's story, a true social entrepreneur and not just a business entrepreneur, here on Our American Stories. We continue here with our American stories. You know the story of the D-Day invasion, a major turning point in World War II. What you may not know is that D-Day went on for many months, from June 6th to August 30th. During this time, there were over 209,000 Allied troop casualties. But today, we bring you the story of a survivor who also happened to be the first woman to ever step foot on Normandy Beach about 20 days into the full-blown D-Day invasion. This heroine's name is Mary Rexford. She was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. And when the Second World War started, she was one of many women to volunteer to serve her country abroad. After returning home, she raised two boys with her husband, Oscar. And it's from their perspective, the Rexford brothers, that we bring you the story of their mother, Mary, a strong and deeply humble Midwest mother. And here's our own Sarah Moore.
6: Doug and Peter are two years and 40 minutes apart. They were brothers born on the same day, July 17th. Doug, the older, still contends that Peter ruined his second birthday party when mom left, eventually returning with baby Peter in tow. The two grew up in University City on Jackson Avenue, a suburb within St. Louis.
10: Both of our parents were in World War II. One of them spent the whole time in Wichita. The other landed on Normandy and was the first woman to land on Normandy, and that was our mother. Mary Marshall Metcalf was her name, and then her married name was uh, Rexford. She was born in uh, 1915. My father was born in 1908, and they were both in, uh, in St. Louis City. She was born on Vernon Avenue.
7: She's just a very normal kid
10: in her 20s. The war's going
7: on, it's exciting, you know, everybody wants to get in on the excitement, especially to get out of the Midwest, to get
10: out of St. Louis. But her father died her first year of college, she was at Smith College, and the family really didn't have any money. And so they couldn't afford to keep her at Smith. So she came back and worked at Peck and Peck, which was a a woman's clothing store. And, you know, again, not a lot of excitement there, but when the war hit, something I don't think any of us today understand. It was life changing. I'm not sure how she selected the Red Cross, but I think they had a good presence here in St. Louis and uh, next thing she knows, she's overseas in England. And this was a staging, you know, prior to the invasion and she landed on Utah beach. I think she was 20 days, 15 or 20, something like that, because they had to secure. Mom describes
7: how she was, uh, all the Red Cross clubmobiles were landing after the beaches had been secured. She wasn't one of the stormtroopers uh, <laughs> after no. the beach had been secured. And she was trying to get her truck into gear. You had to double clutch it. It was nothing like cars are today. And she felt like she was holding up the whole uh, war uh, movement because she couldn't get the clutches to work on her. And she finally got it, drove
10: on, and all the other clubmobiles followed her onto the beaches a two-and-a-half-ton truck. Again, they're called Clubmobiles. And the whole purpose was to follow the troops, be right behind them, front lines, and serve coffee and donuts. Part of the, the thing is to make sure that the soldiers are as happy as can be. And so they had music on the Clubmobiles, and these soldiers would come back, and they would see these women, and they would, they would give them their medals. Yeah,
7: Purple Hearts.
10: Yeah, anything just to be next to a woman, to sit there and talk to her because they're getting shot at and bombed the whole bit. Ironically, so was mom, because they're so close behind.
7: There's one the, the story where she's uh, serving the troops, and one soldier goes off with the coffee and donuts and whatever, steps on the landline, and right there in front of, of everybody just gets blown, blown up. The Germans also, after their bombing raids, they'd be flying back into Germany, and if they had any bombs left over, they couldn't land with them. So they had to unload their bombs anywhere, and frequently that would be where uh, Mom was camped out.
10: Years later, in the early 1960s, Mom was my den mother for my Cub Scout pack, same for my brother Doug. Well, Mom never talked about any of this war stuff, and having your mom as a den mother was kind of embarrassing, because she's your mom. So when it comes to knots, and you know, try to put up a tent when you're a Cub Scout. Having your mom there, it's like, this is horrible. This is stupid. Well, years later, we find out, wait a minute. You were shot at by machine guns. People dropped bombs on you. You're hiding in bomb craters. Why didn't you tell us this? We would have been the coolest Cub Scouts on the planet. But she just never, it never came up.
6: So two boys lived their early childhood without knowing their own mother was a wartime hero. Until one day, their father stumbled upon a box of letters in the basement. The letters contained the treasured information about the details of her experience on the beaches of Normandy.
10: Dad worked in the basement of our house in Creve Corps. He set up a little office for himself and... The story behind the chest was, again, you're driving through. This was when they were in Germany. And there's a lot of bombed out homes because, remember, Hitler wanted to have a scorched earth. When he was retreating, he was telling his troops, scorched earth, destroy everything. Happily, most of the commanders knew better. This this is their country, so what are you going to do? But there were many, many, many abandoned homes. And Mom and her group went into one of them. And there was this old painted chest, a Bavarian, uh, typical of that culture, small chest, about two feet by one foot by one foot. So a small thing. And the place is gone and nobody's there. And so mom picks up the chest and says, well, cool. And it really wasn't stealing because the house had been bombed, you know, and everybody's gone. So she just kept the chest. And when she came back home, that was the one thing she brought home with her. And that's where all of the letters that she had sent to her mother, who she had saved, uh, gave them back to my mom and she was putting them in this chest. And so one day, Dad was downstairs, and he starts looking through it. And it just put on a light bulb for him to, you know, start to try to put some of this together with a lot of ancillary information, which, by the way, he also was able to garner a glean from some of the other Club Mobile girls uh, when they all got together.
7: And the heroic part was that everybody at that time wanted to get involved in, in the exciting adventure that was going on, and, and nobody wanted to be sitting on the sidelines. So she was almost swept into it. I mean, she, she, she wasn't not aggressive or you know a violent person or you know angry person or anything like that that wanted to jump into a fight. And she was a, a very you know simple girl. And uh, that was what was happening, and she, she, the Red Cross was was the obvious way for her to assist, and so many other you know girls at that time, just to do something good, you know. And that that was they they figured stopping Hitler was the best thing they could possibly do, but she didn't even think about it in terms of you know some great
10: heroic feat, and I guess that's why she didn't talk you know so much about it. We were again completely unaware growing up. Yeah. Of any of this, and what I guess is striking about it, I mean, here's your mom, who would get together with her girlfriends and play bridge, uh, and she liked to play golf. She's on all kinds of committees, the USO, you know. Uh, yeah, later uh, in life, she you know, did the USO and so forth, but church, with a church, church, and all the uh, Central Presbyterian Church. So here's this lady who she's over there, and she watches a guy get blown up by a mine, you know, which I you mean, know, the guy is you know vaporized basically. Uh, and he she sees over there you're just behind the front lines so there's dead bodies everywhere, both German and American and you're seeing all of the uh, the Red Cross ambulances and in the hospital areas where they went you've got you know blood and gore everywhere she comes back and there was no PTSD you know uh if there was we we knew nothing of it and it was just such a normal uh, life in the suburbs but I get the impression, unless it was so outrageously underreported, that there was a paradigm shift between today and then, because the horrible blood and gore of war hasn't changed. I mean, like it or not, the way they kill people today is exactly the same. You know, it's a bullet and a gun. Until I got older, and uh, when she, uh, unfortunately, was getting sick, she was able to get back into her uniform, and it was like, wait a minute. Hold, oh, walk me through this. What what is going on here? And she would just kind of talk about it matter-of-factly. It's it's pretty cool, you know, when 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 you think about it. It takes a lot of fortitude, and I think it's even more exciting or cool to think that you can transition back. How you transition back into the normal world. I have no clue. And she again, she didn't really talk about it.
0: And you've been listening to Mary Rexford's sons, the Rexford brothers. And special thanks to them for sharing the story of their mom with us. Special thanks also to Ellie Allen. And great job, as always, to Sarah Moore. With grace and fearlessness, Mary Rexford led on the front lines. And with grace and fearlessness, she nurtured a home. Mary Rexford is a true American hero. She put her life on the line for the well-being of others. And she didn't wear her accomplishments or bravery on her sleeve. She just led quietly and humbly. This is the spirit we know and love, and it's because of mothers like these that we get to do what we do every day here at Our American Stories. By the way, you can actually learn more about her experiences in the book Battle Stars and Donuts, an autobiography that she and her husband Oscar put together in her final years. Tragically, Mary did pass away on March 2, 1996, at the age of 80 due to pneumonia she had contracted just after Liberation in Europe It had been dormant in her body for years But this was not before she was remembered One last time In 1994, just two years before her death When she was asked by the French government To lay a wreath During the memorial services At Utah Beach in Normandy Even this honor, a great honor Cannot quite capture the depth Of her courage A great hero, a great mother Mary Rexford's story is told by her two boys Here